This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Karen Jones. Karen is a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Melbourne. She joined me in the studio to talk about her upcoming lecture, Wise Trust. What is trust and how do we trust others wisely? I'm really excited to have with me in the studio Dr. Karen Jones. She's a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Melbourne. Um, she has written extensively about trust in a range of scholarly places, uh, in books and journal articles. She's given many talks. She also writes about emotions and rationality and uh, as her bio says, much of her work is from a feminist perspective, which is excellent. So I'm very excited now to join Karen um, and to talk about wise trust. Hi, Karen. Hi. Thanks, Amy. It's great to be here. It's so fabulous to have you. I um, was a student of yours many years ago and I was enthralled by, um, you know, your talks about ethics because uh, it's one of those topics that it just affects people so much uh, in our daily lives and yet we don't really think about it from a philosophical angle all that often and to have I guess the theories and the ideas that can really challenge you also then means that you look at your own you know life ethical dilemmas and situations in different ways. Yeah that's uh, those theories are a great tool to think with and they invite you to conduct an ethical self-audit so you know whenever you hear about utilitarianism an act is right if and only if of all the acts available to the agent, it maximises the satisfaction of preferences. Everyone considered. That's the formal definition. Mm. But the basic idea is you should be doing the most good you can. Now, conduct an ethical audit of your own lives. When I do this, I feel very humbled <laughs> according to that criteria. Yeah. Right? So um, it does give you like lots of resources for self-reflection as well as a capacity to understand you know, major thinkers and theorists who thought significantly about ethics. Yeah. So it's one of my favourite classes. Is it? Oh, yeah. that's good. Because I think, um, you know, there's ethical theory and then there's applied ethics and yes. they're both obviously very interrelated, aren't they? They are. And then there's a whole bunch of other topics that are sort of clustering around these, which I'm now having the opportunity to start to explore with students, but at the higher levels, like ethical expertise. Is there such a thing as ethical expertise? If there is, who's likely to have it? You know, should we look to philosophers for that? Should we yeah. look at, as I argue, people who are engaged in social justice movements who are mm. trying to understand a value like the value of equality or social justice or freedom or whatever it is through active engagement with a set of political issues. Yeah. So you have those uh, sort of things spinning out from ethical theory including like what is the status of ethical theory itself but also whether anyone can have moral knowledge, whether anyone can be a moral expert and if mm. they can be should we defer to them? So those That's are some other things question. I've talked about and it's there actually and this notion of moral deference mm. and trusting someone's testimony about what's right and wrong, that my work in trust and my work in ethical theory kind of come together. Because mm. I think, and this has proven somewhat controversial, that you can actually come to know important moral truths, things about what you should do through relying on someone else's testimony. And 
in the old, old days, this was kind of a commonplace. You go to your priest, your priest tells you what to do. Mm. Um, and then it's completely went out of favour. But yeah. I've tried to argue that sometimes it can actually be wise to trust people who are first person experientially and practically involved in an issue. So, mm. you know, sometimes men just should trust what their feminist women friends say, say Is about their experience. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And and that's going to have implications for what those men should do, mm. like as allies and in their own behaviour. So that's where the ethical theory comes together with the work on trust to talk about the potential for testimony mm. to pass moral knowledge between us. Yeah, it really is about... Yeah, trusting and relying on someone else's insights and knowing that they're coming from a place of honesty or, you know, trustworthiness, which is also, you know, always murky. Yeah, honesty um, and trustworthiness for sure. But I want to separate, you ran together in that comment, Mm. to trust and to rely. I don't think those are the same. I think we rely on people sometimes. We rely on things, you know, we rely on bicycles, cars, public transport. Mm -hmm. But for me, what separates them is that trust is not a matter of action like relying on is. It's an attitude that comes before and explains action. So, you know, that phrase like, oh, my goodness, when we're trust has been let down, we say, Mm. wow how could I have been so blind? Why didn't I see that coming? And the answer is often we trusted them. And what I think that involves is an element of emotionality, an element of optimism about Mm -hmm. that other person's willingness to be responsive to you. So I want to say, yeah, reliance is a thing Mm. and it's a very uh, broad phenomenon that we see sometimes between people, but we also see between people and inanimate objects, tools, public transport systems. But trust is an attitude underlying not all cases of reliance but underlying some cases of reliance and it's this affective element that I think makes it so powerful but also so Mm. scary right you can get burnt because if you're viewing someone through this kind of optimism you're interpreting who they are what they say what they do in this more positive way that if you were just neutral you maybe wouldn't Mm. and that's sort of its power but it's also its danger That is very dangerous. And you talk about trust being an affective attitude. And by affect, we're talking about display of emotion or feeling of emotion. Um, And there's this kind of spectrum, which, um, you know, I've seen in one of your slides, which I find really interesting, is that there's on the one end distrust and on the other end trust. Mm. And they're obviously two very different things, although they're they're on the same scale um but it has a range of i guess affects or lenses with which you view the person as to whether you're distrusting or trusting yeah and i want to say there's some in between and middle ground too Mm. and sometimes i think this middle ground is insufficiently theoretically explored but also this matters practically so what am i saying some people say i can't trust this person Right, I've got to go immediately to distrust. Mm. Actually, if you think you've got a kind of spectrum going on here, there are some more intermediate positions. There is, I think, neutrality. There's also a sort of hopeful trust. It's not quite full trust, Mm. 
Yeah. Right? But it's the kind of trust we sometimes have in our friends who've let us down once. And instead of going immediately to distrusting them, we mm. might sometimes, sometimes that might be justifiable. But sometimes the right thing to do is to continue with a bit of hopeful trust. And then when your friend understands that that's what you're doing, it can mm. be an invitation for them to lift their game and to repair again that relationship that was perhaps broken by a betrayal. Mm. So that's why I think it's important to see the spectrum from neutrality, from a kind of caution before you hit outright distrust, and from a kind of hopeful trust before you hit the full-on trust. Because once you see that, it helps you in your thinking. When you're trying to work out what you should do in an interaction, particularly with a person who has, you know, let you down in the past. It lets you see there's more space to occupy than immediately going, bang, you betrayed me. You know, you're toast, completely (laughs) out of my circle. I'm going to distrust you henceforth. And maybe I'm even going to tell other people they should distrust you too. Yeah, because, I mean, the fact that you say it has an emotional component or there's an affect involved means that the other party can or should be able to read to some extent how you are approaching them and whether you are viewing them through a lens of distrust or trust and some people are possibly more revealing than other people in terms of you know making that visible on their face or in their vocal tone or you know their actions yes but it certainly does indicate that there's some level of reciprocity or some kind of interaction or dynamic that's occurring when you either approach someone with a sense of distrust or neutrality or, you know, full optimism. Mm, I think that's right. Um, And the communication's two-way. So we do communicate who we're trusting about what. Now, sometimes that's not explicit. Mm. That's just embedded in a whole background of ways we do things normally around here. You know, who's trusting you to do what's just kind of social uh, presupposition. The other side, though, is really interesting, and I've been thinking about this a lot. We want there to be trustworthy people, right? So we can trust them to do things for us mm. or to take care of goods or whatever it is. But we also want those trustworthy people to, as if you like, put their hand up and say, you can trust me over here. Now, sometimes it's explicit and somebody says, you know, you can trust me about this. Right? And sometimes mm. the explicit statement of that is less likely to be believable, right? Yes. But we want to be able to communicate who is trustworthy. So if you like, we can match up the one who would trust with someone who is trustworthy in that area. And for me, this is really fascinating because this kind of communicative exchange occurs in a really rich social context. So I've been thinking about some of the ways in which bias and prejudice can destroy that communication. And there's some excellent examples of this. The Delta uh, airline flight attendants, one of my favourites, they were calling for a doctor and this young, um, but not super young, to be like a gynaecologist. So maybe she was in her early 30s. um, African-American woman put her hand up and the airline steward, so she's trying to communicate, you can trust me for medical matters, right? Yeah. Literally by putting her hand up. And the airline um, steward said, um, no, we're after doctors, you know, doctor or nurse or someone with real medical experience. And she said, yes, I'm a doctor. And again, she was pushed back against with like, what kind of doctor? What are your qualifications? Show me your qualifications. So mm. 
it was supposed to be a simple exchange, a call for expertise, right? Yeah. A clear signaling in that context that this person had expertise. But because of assumptions about African-American women, youth maybe had a part to play Mm. in it too. It was like she was talking to somebody who had their fingers stuck in their ears and was humming loudly. And that's a kind of pathology. That is a, a, a pathology that gives rise to us distrusting the trustworthy. Um, and I think we've got a lot of that going on. And by the way, we've got a bunch of that going on with um, African Australian young people in Melbourne, you know, right mm-hmm. at the moment. And what happens when that happens to you is it can leave you demoralised. Yeah. Um, and you can live up to the worst expectations when that's kind of constantly communicated at you, even though you're trying to communicate back. I'm trustworthy about this. It's like... You're trying to communicate to people with who who are deaf, who who can't hear. Yeah, and well, what do you think that does to a person who is not only demoralised, but does that then mean that, I mean, they're trying to have an honest, like I'm I'm trustworthy. Here's my expertise. Exchange with another person, and they're not believed because of bias or prejudice. Does that mean that then they feel like they're going to trust? other people less? Like, does it undermine trust? Um, It can, but it certainly doesn't have to because, I mean, what's interesting is you can have multiple overlapping communities. So sometimes people are able, even in the face of all this sort of refusal to connect, to find other people to connect and so keep uh, a sense of the power of their own agency, Right, but um, sometimes that doesn't happen, and mm-hmm. I think those who are routinely distrustful do show some kind of flaw in their character. And for me, this mm. is fascinating. This is what I've been trying to write about lately because a lot of people have written about the danger of trusting, and it's obvious, right? Because um, you can be let down, you can be let down in really catastrophic ways. You know, think of all those paedophile priests who were trusted by um, family members and by children. But people ignore, though, the cost of distrusting without warrant. Mm. And that is a cost, it's an opportunity cost, right? We could do something together if only we could build trust. But it's also a significant cost to those people who are preemptively distrusted, mm. um, to their power, their capacity to be, one way of thinking about it, is socially included, right? Um, and for their chance to engage in sort of cooperative enterprises, mm. but also for their chance to keep a sense of themselves as agents with things to offer, you know. Exactly. And let's walk this back a tiny bit because there's an interesting point um, that you make in one of your pieces about the fact that trust has three parts. So it's not just that um, A trusts B Mm -hmm. and that's it, like I just trust you, you know, unlimited trust. There is the third element which is for that, for, um, you know, a certain thing. Yeah. 
in a domain or area, I think this is actually really important to observe because um, if we think it's just, you know, I trust you or don't trust you and mm-hmm. that's supposed to be global, well, for a start, that'd be really foolish. It's like, excuse me, don't trust um, me with like, neurosurgery and don't let me anywhere near your plumbing we have no idea what the results of that would be there's all the stuff that Mm -hmm. i just don't know about and as a trustworthy person i'm responsible for sort of having a sense of what my limits are and what my capacity is so that i don't um over communicate trustworthiness where i simply don't have it Mm. but on the trusters side it's also interesting because if we think it's got to be global And so I'm just going to trust you or not trust you, full stop, not in any area or otherwise. Mm. When we suffer a small letdown, and this is small, it's just part of being human, right? We're fallible, we're finite, we let each other down, right? You can think, ah, untrustworthy person, better not have anything to do with them. But if you think it's like, I'm trusting you in a domain, you know, and maybe I can realise actually, you know, you're really forgetful about money. Great friend. Mm, but mm. I'm going to be really careful when I lend you some money because it probably won't come back. You can sort of recognise a gap or, you know, this is a wonderful friend will stand by me, but gosh, she had these awful experiences watching her mum die of cancer. If I've got a medical problem, I am not going to call on that person because that would be calling on her where she's limited and vulnerable and you know we can understand why that is Mm. so if you have this more it's about a it's about b so it's about two people or Mm. groups of people not doesn't have to be one yeah and it's about an area of interaction that can help you see that um we don't have to withdraw trust. We can think about how to place it more strategically in recognition of the limitations that each of us has and that we inevitably have because that's just, you know, what it is to be human. Mm. And probably one of the most extreme or intense versions of having to trust someone is in a relationship, like yes. a, a personal romantic relationship because often one's life is intertwined and you do things together in order to of have a mutual benefit yeah. socially financially you know there's a whole range of ways in which you're not just relying but trusting a person with many elements of your life how does it work in that area when there are many domains yeah. of which you really need to trust someone yeah i think we do trust our intimates in like a whole range of domains and areas but there's one thing i think then a good relationship you have to really work at. And that is the communicative aspect of being a trustworthy person. So you have to work at understanding if you've got gaps and limits, which we all have gaps and limits, right? Making clear what those are. Mm. Now, for some relationships, some gaps and limits are going to be deal breakers, right? Some people have problems with intimacy, deal breaker if you're hoping for a life partner right but we all have sort of gaps and limitations and that need not be a problem with our trustworthiness if we're able to negotiate where those gaps are Mm. talk about their significance um and maybe over time eliminate some of them but maybe not the relationship grows in other directions in other ways Mm. um so Really, that does require a level of self-awareness and reflection, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, there's 
uh, set of problems about being able to achieve that self-awareness and reflection. So there's a lot of um, virtues and capacities involved in both being a trustworthy person and in being a wise truster. Um, And there's quite a few roadblocks on the way. You know, some people have their views uh, massively uh, uh, seconded, so like agreed on, wherever they go, echoed Mm. back to them, right? Um, And they might not be right. So some people, mm, especially men perhaps in conditions of patriarchy, are overly self-confident. Some other people are under self-confident about what they can do, what their competences are, what their capacities is. Mm. So you can have distortions in in both ways. And some of those distortions can be sort of almost politically shaped and structured. So I kind of occasionally want to tell politicians um, (laughs) who we might really worry about their trustworthiness in general, but sometimes, dang, they think they know things and they don't. So if they were trustworthy, it's mm. not that they would have to know. They would have to start listening. Learning. Yeah. Learning. And saying, I actually don't know the answer to that question, perhaps, when that, they don't. That would be a great first starting point. Yeah. Right? And that's something that's very important right now is because there's a lot of erosion of trust between, you know, um, people in the general population and governments around the world. And I find it interesting that, you know, it's only getting worse in terms of our trusting of governments to do certain things. And I guess that's where the domains come in, is that perhaps governments, um, you know, say or purport to that, that, that they can actually be competent and trustworthy in a certain area when perhaps they're not? Um, I think that's definitely part of it. People want to claim the language of being trustworthy, right? Mm. Because, you know, that's a great thing, we think. Actually, it's interesting, though, because thieves can be trustworthy with respect to each other. So it's actually Mm. the goodness of that thing depends on what you're going to use it uh, for, right? Um, But I think something else has gone wrong, too. I would actually really like politicians to start talking about their values and their big picture social value position. Mm. Some people do this, but increasingly not, right? Yeah. Why do I say this? Because should you introduce some policy five years down the track? Well, what's your economic modelling about that policy? What's the world going to be like? It could change, Mm. right? And if you say this person said they would never have a carbon tax and now they have one completely untrustworthy, complete liar... You haven't allowed anyone discretion to change positions as the situation evolves. Mm. So in a way, we're actually, and that's a failure of trust, right? When we trust, we'll let someone have discretion. Mm -hmm. So I think if we had a clear value position available, we might be more willing to allow our parliamentarians' discretion as to how they instantiate those values once we signed on to that evaluative agenda. Mm. But nobody wants to talk about values. And is that because 
they don't have any? <laughs> That's a really sceptical hypothesis. But, you know, sometimes it is like, which policy this week is going to get the most voters? Well, that's mm. not a way of having and expressing a commitment to a set of values. That's a way of responding immediately to political pressure, to polls and so on. Mm. And you would assume that values are really quite unchangeable. Like they wouldn't be, they wouldn't really change that much over time that one person who says, you know, these are my values, my personal and professional values, you would assume then that they would have some level of consistency that you could be able to trust. That's right. And the implementation of those might be situationally dependent, subject to new knowledge. And of course, values do change over time. Sometimes we experience almost conversion uh, experiences. So you, you can read some uh, autobiographical writings by people who started out, for example, as white supremacists and came to think rightly mm. <laughs> that their values were deeply, deeply erroneous. So ch- change happens. Yeah. Uh, change happens. And that can be a good thing. But yeah. they are more stable and undergird whole ways of approaching problems rather than just saying, oh, in the next election, I'm going to uh, repeal the carbon tax or I'm going to do some very specific thing. Mm, mm. It's a really great point because, you know, there's so much that changes in politics and it's a very fast-moving domain that it does does really need that, um, I guess, certainty and constancy of values that, you know, provides some satisfaction... I guess, from people. And can make you feel, I can sign up with this uh, political group because I understand their, you know, core, not agenda, Mm. because we want to say, we keep wanting to use this word agenda, but I understand their their, their evaluative lens through which they will uh, approach a changing world and try and deliver policies and so on that reflect those core values. Mm. And I just find it sometimes really disappointing that we're not getting enough of that evaluative talk. Um, And I guess commitment to them. Like when you say these are the values and this party signs on to these values, then you need to stick with them. Yes, that's right. And if you're getting some bad poll response, then you go back and explain what those values are, how they're implicated in this situation. And so effectively you allow some things to blow you around, that is to say to move you, the specific changing circumstances, Mm. but other things you don't, right? The things that are trying to push you away from the evaluative outlook. So Mm. I find... I think I think it would be better actually if we talk about politicians breaking their promises if we didn't ask them for the kind of very specific promises that they are later able to be charged with breaking because mm. um, sometimes it's a bad thing because breaking the promise means moving away from the value but sometimes it's just a recognition of the changing circumstances. Yes, and it would be nice to see that kind of pragmatism and openness about, well, actually, the situation did change and communicating that change. Yes. Not just, you know, denying that you've changed it when really you have. Absolutely. It's <laughs> not that productive at all. Uh, but, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Why have you changed? And if, if there's a good reason to change, communicate that reason. Mm. And if it was just, ooh, I got a little frightened by some opinion polls or the other side was lobbing hand grenades at me, um, which... 
that's another topic, but yes. civility in the Australian Parliament as compared to the New Zealand Parliament, for example, wow. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, that is a very interesting thing and I wonder about that. That's probably a whole other topic. I think but, it is. <laughs> yeah, so we'll have to leave that, but it, it seems very interesting. I want to talk about... Um, how we, because we're going to get to Wise Trust yes. and talk about that in some more detail. But before we get to Wise Trust, I think we need to explore justified trust yes. and what that really means. And well, what does that mean? I think it is, it, it means your trust is not rationally criticizable. And I think whether your trust is not rationally criticizable so we can't go like you know you made a mistake see you're being irrational here yeah is a function of a complex set of factors and that means i'm against a view that's been quite dominant and that's the view that says you're justified in trusting if but also only if you are justified in believing that the other person is trustworthy and I think mm-hmm. that's wrong because I think there's this thing um, called therapeutic trust in the philosophical literature where you're trying to bootstrap the justification for your trust into existence in virtue of doing the trust in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, parents do this. It's part of teenager wrangling, right? Mm. Your kids let you down three times. Let's take a bit. Is it actually reasonable for me to believe that this time somehow miraculously she won't let me down again yeah she won't have that party or like purchase all those in-game thingies and leave me with a very big bill um but sometimes when you persistently continue to trust and you communicate that Mm. it can make it the case that the person becomes trustworthy and yet you weren't justified in believing that they were trustworthy. But I want to say you can be justified in this having this optimism about their capacity to respond to the ways in which you're counting on them. Mm. So I think this bootstrapping phenomenon suggests justified trust isn't just a matter of belief. But I also think, and this is quite intuitive, that there's lots of situational factors that shape whether our trust is justified. Like we live in networks of trust. You know, we've just been focusing about two people or two groups of people. But those individuals or groups are situated in a social context. And that goes on to make up climates of trust. And fascinatingly, Mm. sometimes I can trust someone precisely because someone else is distrusting that person huh doctors think about it yeah Yeah, i can trust my doctor right which is great i do trust my doctor it's It's very important to have a therapeutic relationship with trust because it just wouldn't happen yeah that's right yeah but that's made possible by various institutional structures including credentialing um certification ongoing professional development training and all these kinds of things Mm. that are operating in the background. So we've got a lot of complex factors that can go into determining whether your trust is is rational or not. Um, Yeah, and it is interesting that you you can reverse engineer someone to become trustworthy. You can with good institutional design and with... um, Good interpersonal responses, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we want to be optimistic, but not too, too optimistic. optimistic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, does what is really the key 
element in being able to trust wisely because that's probably, you know, an aspiration many people would have. Yeah. You want the trust that you're giving to actually be warranted yeah. to um, have a good outcome. Um, and that's why you need to have a certain level of optimism. Yeah. But what are the kind of key elements of wise trust? Yeah. If I was able to distill them and mm. put them in some rules, you know, like the eight easy steps, yeah, yeah. Um, we would have, I would have like a phenomenal bestseller, bestseller yeah. absolutely phenomenal bestseller. And maybe I should tell you this anecdote, yeah, just in order for the listener to be uh, appropriately sceptically situated with respect to um, what I will say after it. Mm. I remember this really clearly. I was four. And it was my first day in kindergarten and this girl came up, said, close your eyes, hold out your hand and I'll give you something nice. And she grabbed my wrist and twisted it opposite each other. It was called a Chinese burn, right? And then the next day, or maybe it was the next week, time's a bit fuzzy, she came up to me again and she said, close your eyes, hold out your hand and I'll give you something nice. And I said, you said that yesterday and you didn't. And she said, yeah, I know, but I will this time. (laughs) And she did the same thing again. And I know this went through three iterations. Okay, so my younger self was not wise. (laughs) But how many times... is too many. Mm. And if you wanted to say, you know, there's that adage, fool me once, shame on me, sorry, shame Shame on on you, you. fool Mm. me twice, shame on me, right? And that's just like you get one chance. Mm. I don't think that's wise. Mm. My younger self probably gave this person about four chances. Maybe I was particularly greedy for treats and nice things to come into my (laughs) head. I don't know. I can't reconstruct the reasoning. So you can't give a rule. But what you can do is start to think about where trust relations are going to be vulnerable and where they're capable of being repaired. So you can think about how to enter into good trust relations, Mm. how to maintain them and how it is you exit from them when they're really profoundly not working. Mm. So a simple rule I can't give you. You know, who knows how many times it can be reasonable to be let down by someone. But I can tell you things about start to pay attention to the ways in which people communicate their trustworthiness to you. Mm. And if in doubt, be explicit about communicating the trust you're putting in other people. Mm. Because sometimes we don't and we feel let down and the other person is like, how was I supposed to know? Yeah, And if that's the case, then that's a failure of the one who's trusting, yeah. not of the one trusted. So own the failures interactively between both sides of the relationship mm. in terms of entering. So do you that's want me to really say something about maintaining? Or? Um, yeah, no, because I want to talk about this, the idea of maintaining it. There's a, a way of, I guess, adapting your trust yeah. relationships. So when you f- discover you can't trust someone in a certain domain, perhaps there's a way that you can still maintain trust by altering what domains you yeah. will trust in. And I think that's important because that stops the burn down the house in the face of a single betrayal mm. because, you know, we do let each other down. We're finite. Um 
we make mistakes. <laughs> and exactly. so this is where like trust is going to connect to forgiveness mm. in the literature, right? Yeah. So I think recognizing that and then recognizing also that there's all the space between optimism and pessimism, including hope, including caution. Mm. So you don't necessarily have to put them in the, I'm trusting you, I'm not trusting you. For some of the things about maintaining trust relations, you know, I think we have to be open to being surprised. And that's something that a philosopher called Annette Beyer um, mm. wrote about, that if we're trusting, we're giving people discretionary powers. And, you know, this comes back to politicians too. Um, so we can't immediately go, what? You let me down. You know, maybe this was actually a creative way of meeting expectations and you could have a conversation with the person about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Annette Beyer, you mentioned her. She's a really impressive philosopher who's now no longer with us. Yes. But she was really important in this area of trust. And I know, you know, has influenced your work, hasn't she? Yes. Yeah. Oh, and she's a New Zealander also. Ah. <laughs> What well, is whatever this? that is, is worth. <laughs> but a New Zealand is very trustworthy. Perhaps we are very trusting. Ah, it's a further question whether we are very trustworthy. But I do actually think, um, and some of the survey work isn't helpful. They ask a vague question like, can most people be trusted? Well, that's going to track your mood. It's like, mm. can most people be trusted with respect to what in which domain? So I'm a bit iffy about this. But nonetheless, yeah. um, New Zealand, you know, Denmark, um, Iceland, we score high on that scale, higher than Australia, way higher than the US, way higher than the UK. And maybe that's telling us something about a kind of social cohesion. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to know what that's tracking exactly. But Well, you do say, given you said there's affect involved and, and on the end of trust is optimism and yeah. distrust is pessimism. I mean, does that mean that Australians might be more cynical or pessimistic if we're distrusting? Uh Yes, but actually, and I don't have this data right at my head, but Australia's fairly high up um, in response to these questions as well. But, you know, if you think about some of the countries mm. um, where this question could be asked, places where you've had civil wars, where you have histories of um, very significant violent crime, yeah. gun ownership and so on, you mm. can see that Australia... Um, Comparatively good. Comparatively good. <laughs> it's just in the public debate that it can sometimes be a bit cynical, I think. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Yeah. And should we give in to that? You mm. know, sometimes there's actually a disconnect between how we inhabit the world and what we do and what we say about what we're doing. For mm. me, this is most apparent in thinking about doctors. Like, there's this view, right, that in the 1950s, people really trusted their doctors. And now, you know, we can do Dr. Google. We <laughs> trust less. Yes. But yeah. actually, I remember it was my great-grandfather who was like, I don't want to go into hospital. People go into hospital to die. Uh, and actually, that happened quite a bit. And now we choose to have elective procedures. We're engaging with medical support, um, surgery, medicine and so on in a way we didn't then. You know, mm. people are living longer with chronic illnesses be precisely because there's these great medicines and we trust our doctors to know which ones are good and which ones will fit for us. Yeah. So we have this discourse about air trust is eroded, but then you look at what we're doing 
and we're not withdrawing in the way that if trust was really eroding, we'd withdraw. Yeah. Yep. But people are withdrawing from the political process mm-hmm. in countries where they're not made to go vote. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Yeah, it's a very good point. And it will be interesting to follow the American example, yeah. given how extreme things are getting. And obviously that's an element of trust, isn't it? That a lot of people, you know, who have been vocally critical of Donald Trump, for example, don't trust him. Yes, and you shouldn't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, there was something I got from Donald Trump and I made a prediction um, in terms of sort of thinking about uh, my work on on trust and trustworthiness. I made a prediction that... um, Almost all of Trump's political relationships would bust up. Mm. Why? Because narcissism is the enemy of wise trust. Why is this? Because for the narcissist, it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. And so when you trust people to do things for you, you're actually going to be expecting their will to be subsumed under yours Mm. if you have this narcissistic tendency. And the other person will invariably let you down because they're a person too. They've got lots else going in their life and it can't be all about you. Mm. So I was quite happy (laughs) to see that prediction made during the election campaign come out spectacularly true. So in terms of, you know, functional virtues, narcissism is the enemy, Mm. communication and a recognition of others as fellow human beings with power and capacity, but also limitation and flaws are key behind trusting wisely, I think. Mm. And it's a great point that you've made that, you know, other humans have agency and they have goals and sometimes they may conflict or, you know, have a tension between what you're trusting them to do and what they personally would want to do. That's right. Uh, And sometimes that can be a breach of trustworthiness but sometimes it can indicate that you have actually trusted um preemptively and without adequate communication Mm. um and asked of somebody and expected by the asking of it where that might be speech but it might just be sort of dumping a problem on them that they will be willing to pick it up and maybe they're just too tired, <laughs> too overcommitted, mm. or just not good at that sort of thing. Yep. Karen, it's been amazing to talk to you and I think I'm feeling a bit wiser. I hope I can actually enact some of the wisdom that you've provided. And uh, if anyone would like to go to your lecture and get the full picture, because this is uh, just the beginning, we're scratching the surface really, um, you can head on to Karen's lecture. It's on the 23rd of August. So um, that's right during Radiothon, which is why I'm speaking to Karen now. And uh, it starts at 6.50. 15 p.m. and it's in the William McMahon Ball Theatre. Which which building is that in? Is that Arts West? No, um, I older? don't know. It's one of the, it's one of the older ones. I yeah, I haven't but, been in that lecture theatre before. I don't. Yeah, know. but guess what? Fortunately, there's an app for the University of Melbourne, yeah. and I myself will be looking at that app to remember <laughs> to where McMahon where Ball Theatre is. is and proceeding there. And if Yes. If I don't get lost, 
using that app, you won't get lost either. Exactly. It is in the Faculty of Arts and that's I'm told it's in that space. So it'll be in one of the arts buildings. You can look it up on their um, web page anyway and you need to register um, just to make sure that they have enough seats uh, so that you can all fit. Um, but Karen will be speaking about Wise Trust on the 23rd of August at 6.15. And, yeah, congratulations on all the great work you're doing, Karen. And you are really an inspiration to many students, I know, because you're so engaging and passionate about these issues. So thank you. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. That was the wonderful Dr. Karen Jones, who is a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Melbourne. And as you've heard, she writes about trust, uh, emotions and rationality. She teaches uh, about ethics. And there's so many um, things one can really learn through philosophy. And I'm sure you have discovered, just as I have, just how practical it is um, for how we live our lives. So never one to say that is in an ivory tower, because I think it's actually really relevant. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM. That's pretty much it for me for today. Um, I want to thank my guests that I've had on, uh, Ben Eltham from New Matilda, who came in to talk about federal politics. Then I had um, the lovely Richard Todd, who is the filmmaker of Dying to Live, and uh, he his film is screening tonight, as I mentioned, um, and that is uh, all about organ and tissue donation and just how important that is for the Australians on the waiting list. And then, of course, I've just been speaking with Karen Jones. She is the Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Melbourne. And uh, I should say, we were talking off air about the fact that there's a wonderful um, woman who's just been appointed head of the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies, and I wrote her name down now, I forgot, and it's Margaret Cameron. Yes. yes, and it's so very exciting to have a female philosopher running um, a school such as the Distinguished Shaps at Melbourne University, so another great development.